When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, we talk crypto and investing with Ryan Alice, managing partner of HeartRhythm and publisher of CoinStack on Substack. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you. I'm excited to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you here. Before we get started talking about crypto, let's give us uh, a sense of your background, uh, particularly your background as an investor before you got involved in the crypto space. So I started out as an entrepreneur on the East Coast of the United States. I built a software company called iContact for, for 10 years as CEO and founder. We, we had a great exit in 2012, sold it for about $169 million to a public company. And then I was, I was young. I was 27 at the time, decided to go back to school, did an MBA at Harvard Business School 2013, 2014. And then after school, I moved to San Francisco and became an angel investor. I uh, invested in uh, about 33 different companies. Some, some of the winners were SpaceX, uh, Lending Club, Change.org, Matterport, uh, Robinhood, and then about 25 other losers as well, uh, as happens in angel investing. Um, and at the same time, I was building a, a global community of leaders making a positive impact in the world called Hive.org, uh, which is still around today. It's a little bit on pause due to COVID. And then over the last two years, I've been focusing on crypto, building CoinStack newsletter, and then joining as a managing partner here at the crypto hedge fund HeartRhythm. So tell us a little bit about what drew you to crypto. Obviously, someone with your background, you could have done anything you wanted to with your life. Why investing in crypto? Well, you know, I was early in the software as a service revolution back in 2002, 2003, and, you know, coming out of growing up with AOL and Prodigy and CompuServe and the Web 1.0 of the Internet, um, I, I was excited to sort of build a company in the Web 2.0 space in the, in the 2000s and 2010s. Back in 2020, I read a book called The Infinite Machine, which is by Camila Russo, which is about the founding story of Ethereum. And, you know, I invested a little bit in Bitcoin in 2017. Back in 2013, I bought a Bitcoin miner, but sadly never plugged it in and gave it away to a friend. And so I had, I had some, some exposure to the Bitcoin world. Um, but when, when the markets crashed in, in early 2018, I sort of uh, wrote off the entire crypto space for two years. And it wasn't until 2020 when I started to read about uh, these smart contracts and how they were underpinning this new form of global finance called DeFi that I became very interested in and started to realize, wow, this is Web3. This is the next generation, the next revolution, and I want to be a part of this. And so that's when I got heavily into Ethereum and heavily into investing. 
Well, you know, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I spun up my first Bitcoin blog, I think in 2013, we started it. And again, sort of as you did, uh, lost interest in it because maybe I got misled by the price action. Uh, it's really a fascinating transition in your thinking that you mentioned there. What was it about Ethereum and the nature of smart contracts that seemed to you, someone with a software as a service background, to have real potential to rebuild the foundations of the internet itself? It's a great question. You know, ultimately, uh, Bitcoin is somewhat speculative. It is a technological platform. It's a distributed database, of course, and, and a ledger. But at the end of the day, without having the smart contract functionality natively on Bitcoin, you can't really build applications on top of it. And so um, you, you can think of uh, Bitcoin as the TI-83 calculator. You can think of Ethereum as sort of the, the web browser where you can build all types of applications within it. And that was really interesting to me. And, and having, you know, grown up in a world where um, in order to do a stocks trade, you know, you have to trade during these certain eight hours a day that New York is open. It takes two days for the stock to settle in order to send a wire to another country. It takes three to four days. You know, I, I'm interested in, in how we create the new financial system that everyone can be part of. And so when I saw a, a true software development platform, with Ethereum and then uh, Ethereum's cousins and competitors that are now springing up very quickly, which we can speak about, I started to get really interesting and, and, and sort of said, hey, this is the future. I want to be part of it. Bitcoin is the TI-83. Man, where to get some comments uh, on that one? <laughs> uh, I'm curious, though, uh, you know, you talk about this current landscape, uh, Ethereum and its competitors. How would you describe uh, the current framework that you see in the world right now uh, in terms of smart contract platforms, L1s and L2s? How do you describe that ecosystem and how do you think about it? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. L1 obviously means layer one. L2 means layer two. Uh, L1 is sort of a synonym for a blockchain, if you will. That's all that really means. Ethereum is by far the first and largest uh, smart contract L1. Uh, and it currently has, if you look at DeFi Llama, it currently has 62% of the total market share for all the total value locked in DeFi. And so Ethereum is certainly by far the largest and most well-known. And there are some L2s. Uh, you, could, you could look at some of the side chains and rollups. You could look at Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, ZK Rollup, ZK Porter that have come out in 2021 and now in 2022 that are making Ethereum scalable, making it faster, making it cheaper, and allowing DeFi applications to be used by the masses, not just by institutions who can afford the multi-hundred dollar gas fees of the mainnet Ethereum. So that's what's going on in, in the Ethereum and the L2 world, but then now there are these other competing smart contract platforms. And I'll, I'll share uh, you know, a little bit of data here about these smart contract platforms um, in terms of their total value locked and then the number of developers, you know, right now, if you look on DeFi Llama, the top six are Ethereum, Terra, Binance Smart Chain, Avalanche, Solana, and Phantom. And so numbers two through six there are all growing faster than Ethereum in terms of developers and in terms of total value locked. Uh, and I certainly have a personal investment in all six of those. And I'm particularly excited by Terra, Avalanche, Solana, and Phantom. And what they have done is they've they've taken a trade-off, many of them, to allow for less decentralization but faster speed, which is allowing for them to be able to handle a higher transactions per second and to be able to handle DeFi at scale uh, where the gas fees are much, much lower. 
So obviously a lot there. We can have a three-hour conversation, I think, on just your last statements there. But let's try and break this down, broaden the conversation, bring people in uh, who are relatively new to the space and still struggling to get their heads around it. Two questions to you, Ryan. Uh, first, talk a little bit about the current state of play uh, in the Ethereum ecosystem and what some of the challenges are in terms of scalability, in terms of speed, in terms of gas fees, costs, uh, that make some of these other solutions so appealing to you. And second, uh, you made reference in passing to the trilemma. Can you break that down for our viewers and explain what those trade-offs are and why they're significant and how you think about those uh, trade-offs in your investing decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let, let's start by just talking about Ethereum. I think it's best, the best metaphor you can use to think about Ethereum is the global settlement layer. And so, um, you know, the, the Bankless podcast guys, they, they created this concept of the mainnet Ethereum being the Manhattan real estate and all of the side chains and the other layer twos and other layer ones uh, being sort of the the outer boroughs of real estate where there's not as much price, there's not, not as much cost because the location isn't as good. Now, if you're Visa and you're settling a couple hundred million dollars a day uh, in transactions, you're going to use the Ethereum blockchain. And in fact, Visa does use the Ethereum blockchain because they don't care about the $200 fee that they're going to have to pay to make that $200 million daily settlement. Now, if you're uh, trying to do a $10 DeFi transaction, uh, and you're not going to want to pay that $200 fee. You know, right now, just to do a Uniswap trade on the Ethereum network, you're looking at $100, $150, depending on the moment. And so you just can't do small trades on Ethereum. Now, a lot of people will criticize Ethereum and saying, you know, gas fees are too darn high. Uh, Ethereum is, is, you know, that proves that Ethereum is useless. Well, the, the, the truth is actually inverse. People are paying, institutions are paying over $50 million a day in revenues to Ethereum. It was $9.9 .9 billion in total revenues for 2021 to the Ethereum blockchain. Yes, the fees are high, but the fees are high because they're, it's actually being utilized. And people are actually willing to pay in that public auction that happens with every block every few minutes on the Ethereum network. Now, with the trilemma, the second part of your question you know, that that's, of course, there's a trade off between security, decentralization um, and speed. And so, you know, what Ethereum is trying to do and is doing since they launched in 2015 is they have a 10 year roadmap. Uh, Vitalik was on uh, a couple weeks ago saying that they feel like they're about 50 percent done with their roadmap of Ethereum. And fortunately, we now have this is the year that Ethereum is getting upgraded to the proof of stake system that's probably coming in mid-year this summer uh, best estimates right now are june or july of 2022 and when that upgrade happens um, it's going to uh, be able to completely change the consensus model of the entire blockchain and uh, make revenues go to the ethereum holders that are staking it and so it's a very exciting upgrade and then after that the last part that'll probably happen mostly in 2023 is the sharding and is the ability to um, have 64 simultaneous versions of the Ethereum blockchain instead of just the one that we have today. So those upgrades are coming. Um, and what's happening is in the meantime, all of Ethereum's competitors are primarily making a trade-off in decentralization in order to increase the speed and provide much lower gas fees. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? 
It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. So again, a great deal there to unpack. I'm curious, just to follow up on the first part of it, uh, give us a sense of what your thoughts are. You sound quite bullish on the Ethereum roadmap, on Ethereum 2.0. Talk to us a little bit about how you see uh, those changes in layman's terms and why it's going to be so significant. Yeah, so since 2008, we've had Bitcoin, right? And Bitcoin is based on a proof-of-work consensus model that requires a lot of electricity uh, and a lot of cryptographic proofs being conducted by tens of thousands of simultaneous computers and nodes around the world. You know, what's happening uh, now is that over the last five years, a brand new model of consensus has, has been created called proof of stake. And what's exciting about that is that takes 99.9% less electricity to be able to provide more security uh, than the Bitcoin network and the older proof of stake model. Now, there's a lot of you know discussion about this, and I've probably spent a thousand hours in the last four or five months going very deep on this. And I'm a huge believer uh, in the proof of stake model, and I'm very excited for that to go live. It's been live in a testing environment since December 2020 on what's called the Beacon Chain. And it'll go live in production in about six months. Now, what that means for an investor, here's what I really want uh, your audience who are investors to understand, is that Ethereum, once it moves to proof of stake in about 180 days from now, is going to be providing cash flows to holders. And when you have cash flows to holders, you can do a discounted cash flow model and actually be able to project the current value of future cash flows. Now, what am I talking about here? So in with Ethereum, they currently, since August 2021, when EIP-1559 went live, have been using about 70% of their daily transaction revenues to reduce their supply. And so what we're going to be seeing pretty soon is the actual increase in the number of Ethereum or Ether each year, their token, is going to be lower than the increase in Bitcoin. So you're going to have a harder money supply than Bitcoin with a lower inflation rate than Bitcoin. And not only that, the revenues from the actual usage of the Ethereum platform are going to be paid out in the form of two different ways. One is through what they're already doing, which is by reducing the supply every single day. That's like, you could think of that like a stock buyback, reducing the total supply. We're at about 118 million Ethereum today. That's gonna trend downward to probably 100 million over the next 10 or 15 years. So it's reducing the supply, making each one more valuable for the holders. And then secondly, once proof of stake launches, we are going to have staking rewards for all of the people that choose to lock up their Ether, which you could do on Lido or Rocket Finance or your, even your own staking pool if you have 32 Ether yourself. And so that, what, why that's exciting is because we're, we're in a global hunt for yield right now. And with Treasuries paying 0.4%, with corporate bonds paying 2.6%, it's actually quite exciting that come six, seven months from now, you're going to be able to stake your Ether 
And you might be able to, it's going to vary depending on the month and the amount of gas fees, but you might be earning 12, 15, maybe even 16, 17% initially uh, in annual rewards uh, just for holding Ether. And so we're looking at a huge yield that is going to be very interesting to institutional investors once the risk of the technological launch is removed, once that goes live. And so I think what that's going to lead to is a substantial appreciation in the value of Ether over 2022. Uh, so you mentioned some of the discussion uh, around uh, around ETH 2.0, around uh, proof of stake. Obviously, this is something that is not without controversy, particularly from people on the Bitcoin side uh, who say that the gold standard is proof of work, not proof of stake. Uh, they argue uh, that proof of stake is, in theory, in their view at least, uh, still unproven at scale. Uh, and they also question uh, the degree to which uh, staking may create greater centralization and, in some senses, uh, a, a replication, in their view, I think it's fair to say, of the traditional finance system. Not saying I agree, but those are the arguments that are out there. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, um, I've spent the last six months of my life building building a crypto quant fund, a crypto DeFi fund called Heart Rhythm. That's really where my focus has is, is been. And so that's my area of expertise. But I will comment on, on, this, on the proof of work, proof of stake debate. And, and I will say that um, saying proof of stake is unproven is sort of like saying the internet is unproven in 1996. We, we have a new technology. Um, it's already working quite well with some of Ethereum's competitors. Uh, we have um, hundreds of billions of dollars now uh, staked in, in the beacon chain. Um, and, and so it's definitely working. And the big question, and here is where the risk is and where someone like Lynn Alden will say, I agree on this, but not yet. We'll give it another six to nine months is once it goes live, once it's proven to actually work, not just on a test chain, but with hundreds of billions of dollars of value, I think there's a real investment opportunity there. And when I look at the what's going on in the world today, I, I had I just moved from Boulder, Colorado to Austin, Texas a week and a half ago. One of the reasons I moved is because 900 homes burned down on December 30th in, in, in about five minutes from the neighborhood I lived in on a fire in the middle of winter, uh, which is very rare. And, and when we look at a world where you see California wildfires, you see Colorado wildfires, I, I don't think we're going to get a global policy regime that is going to be open no matter how much we go uh, to proof of work on renewable energy, which thankfully is increasing every year. Um, I don't think we're going to have a world where it's palatable to have a programmable money in a global currency that is using as much electricity as we're currently using in the proof of work world. And so I think proof of stake is the future. Uh, I think within 15 years, uh, there's going to be a lot of disagreement with, with me on this. And so let me make a, an un, uh, 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 unlikely project prediction that very few people are making. I think within 15 years, Bitcoin itself is going to have to move to a proof of stake system. Um, I think that's the future. And, and I already see the, the chains that have chosen that to be thriving. That's really interesting. That's definitely an out of consensus view uh, and a really interesting one based on the rationale that you put forward. While we're talking about proof of stake, give us the back of the envelope sketch for how proof of stake works, how it secures transactions on a blockchain, and how it's currently being used in Beacon Chain today. Yeah, great, great question. So um, 
I'm going to give you the high level. All right. And, and we can go deeper, but um, right now with, with, when you're a proof of work minor, right. Uh, you are maintaining a computer or a set of computers, a set of, a set of nodes that are um, actively doing cryptographic proofs uh, roughly every 10 minutes with every block of the Bitcoin blockchain. And it's a race. And, and the one that wins uh, is able to get their block reward, get that little bit of Bitcoin that halves every four years. And that's the incentive to participate in the system and to validate the ledger and to keep that now 13-year history of Bitcoin transactions up to date every 10 minutes. And then if one of them says the wrong thing, they get kicked out of the system and they're considered a, a rogue node. And that's how you maintain both security and accuracy of the distributed ledger. Now let's look at a proof of stake system. In a proof of stake system, what's interesting is that what matters is not how many computers you've purchased, right? Not how much money you have that's allowed you to buy up the supply and become one of the sort of top 10 Bitcoin miners in the world that now controls a significant portion of the supply. But it's now a little bit more democratized. It's just based on who has invested in the token, who holds the token, and who has been able to commit that token. Now, you can create your own, in the case of Ethereum, you can create your own staking uh, node with 32 Ether. And uh, you can join, if you have less than 32 Ether, uh, a pool like Lido or Rocket Pool, as I mentioned. And you could even stake your Ether now uh, on Coinbase, you know, with, with ETH 2.0 coming out, and that'll get unlocked once the ETH 2 launches. And so by being part of that system, you're able to join not just, you know, a few hundred global miners who sort of operate more like an, uh, you know, an oligarchy or an oligopoly, but you're able to join a network of tens and tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of distributed validators who participate in network security and in participate in validating all of the transactions that ha happen on the Ethereum blockchain. So those are just a little bit of the differences between proof of work and proof of stake. And then, of course, because you're not running these uh, races to do cryptographic proofs, you're not using nearly as much electricity, which is, of course, much greener. Uh, by the way, we should say one of the other criticisms from the Bitcoin community of Ethereum uh, is this idea that it's centralized, it's controlled by uh, a few individuals, uh, and they cite the 2016 rollback after a DAO hack. Give us your thoughts on the security uh, and decentralization of the Ethereum network today and where it's heading tomorrow. Yeah, there's about 12,000 nodes right now on, in, in the Ethereum world. It's, it's a very decentralized system. Uh, Ethereum launched in 2014, 2015. Um, within a year of its first launch, we, many of us have heard about the DAO hack where quite a few hundred million dollars um, was stolen um, because of a smart contract vulnerability. Um, the entire Ethereum community got together to be able to kick that hacker out and get the money back. And that ended up creating a few different forks. You know, there's all, you could always go invest in the Ethereum Classic ETC if you want. But for, fortunately, that has not really become a true development platform. And there's very, very few apps uh, or dApps on Ethereum Classic's blockchain. And so the real Ethereum, if you will, ETH, um, as a blockchain has uh, hundreds and hundreds, actually thousands of dApps that are building on top of it, dozens that have total value locked over $100 million and are powering the foundation of, DeFi's, of DeFi, sort of crypto's killer app, if you will. 
And so I really um, am, am very, very bullish um, on Ethereum, um, on Ethereum as being a leader in DeFi, on Ethereum being the development platform. And it's been five years since that hack and since that fork. And a lot of um, stabilization has happened in the Ethereum community such that um, you, you can't fork Ethereum today because if you do, all of the applications you know, are going to choose the main one. And so I, I think that's a protection layer. And so anything that's going to be 12 months, 18 months old is going to go through a tumultuous start. We've seen that in the last year with Solana, which has, has had a lot of growth, but also a lot of criticism of being overly centralized. Over time, as something becomes five years old, six years old, seven years old, like Ethereum now, it starts to mature and development uh, becomes much more decentralized. Uh, there's now over 4,100 developers around the world working directly on Ethereum. That came out last week in the Electric Capital Developer Report and versus only about 650 for uh, Bitcoin. And so you got to follow the developers in order to understand where the innovation is going. So you mentioned dApps uh, in your response. Tell us a little bit about how you think about dApps. What are the big functional buckets uh, that you see dApps being divided into? And how are you thinking about them as an investor? Yeah, that's a great question. So what, one of my favorite websites I've already referenced a couple times today is DeFi Llama. If you go there, DeFiLlama.com, you can see there's 240 billion dollars so far in total value locked in DeFi. That's up about 12x from this time last year when there was $20 billion in total value locked. And so we've seen incredible growth uh, in DeFi. You know, the top four uh, DeFi apps, Curve, Convex, Maker, and Aave, each of those has more than $10 billion in total value locked uh, within their ecosystem. Um, they are all on Ethereum. Uh, some of those like Curve and Ave are also on others. Ave is on Avalanche and Polygon. Curve's on six or seven networks now. Um, and, and essentially the biggest uh, different um, categories, if you will, the, the biggest one is, is you know, money markets um, and yield generators. So a yield generator is like Curve or Convex or Yearn. A money market is a place where you can go either borrow capital or lend capital. That's a place like Aave or Maker or Compound. Um, and so money markets and, and yield um, networks are, are huge. Um, but there's also... Um, you know, decentralized exchanges. Uh, there's also um, option platforms. There's indexes. There's staking platforms. There's stablecoin platforms. There's NFT platforms. There's gaming platforms. And so there's all kinds of different dApps out there. Dapp is just a decentralized app. I, I'm just moving, starting to call it an app at the at this point. Um, but the biggest ones are certainly in the world of finance. Yeah, I'm curious, what are your thoughts about some of the non-financial uh, dApps? You mentioned uh, NFTs. What are some of the other categories you think about? And are you interested in them? Or are you mostly focused right now on the DeFi applications? Yeah, I think DeFi is um, the future global financial system. I'll, I'll talk more about that in a minute. So obviously, these financial applications that are on top of Ethereum and Avalanche and Solana and Phantom are the ones that are most interesting to me. Um, I think those are the ones that are going to grow the fastest over the next 10 years. Now you can't count out, uh, you can't count out NFTs because NFTs have a tremendous use case as well. And I would say NFTs are probably the second biggest uh, killer app in crypto after DeFi. 
Um, and, and when you look at the amount of gas fees, amount of money that OpenSea is paying to the Ethereum network and also the Polygon network that they're now minting on daily, uh, we're, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars a day that is being paid to make these NFT transactions happen. And then within the NFT world, there's a subset of gaming. Um, and I think we've seen last year with Axie taking off so quickly with, with Sandbox, the whole gaming and metaverse world, I think is, is going to continue to grow very quickly the next 10 years. And then lastly, I'll put this in a third killer app of crypto category, is the whole world of Web3. And by that, I mean um, the, sort of the subset of that, which is decentralized social networks. I, I think they're still so new. Uh, what BitCloud, which is now called DSO, ha has started in 2021 is interesting. Uh, what Twitter's working on with their Blue Sky project is interesting. I think it's going to take another three or four years for that to mature. But between DeFi, NFTs, and metaverse gaming, and then lastly, um, with um, that last core category I was speaking about um, of Web3 social, I think those are the major categories that are going to drive most of the value in, in digital asset utilization over the next few years. I want to circle back to DeFi. You mentioned why you believe uh, DeFi is such a valuable framework for thinking about the next generation financial system. Give us a little bit of context on it. Uh, tell us how you see the current financial system and what particularly DeFi brings to the table that makes it such a compelling uh, alternative to what we have today. Yeah, well, the current financial system is obviously an amalgamation of um, policy and technology that, that's come about over the last 75 years. I mean, you can really trace it back to post-World War II with Bretton Woods and how that laid the foundation for the Global Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and the WTO and some of those international institutions that now govern still today are at least Western global financial system. You know, when I look at the current financial system, I see uh, it, it feeling like, you know, dial up Internet, uh, very slow. Um, you know, it takes two or three days to send a wire often. Uh, the, the global SWIFT system is heavily outdated. Um, and, you know, it, the fact that you can only trade these traditional stocks uh, between the hours of 9.30 and 4.30 on a Monday through Friday is, is ridiculous. Uh, we, we saw a year ago with the GameStop debacle with Robinhood, the fact that it takes two days to, to actually settle a trade. You know, in the world yeah. of blockchain, if you can't settle in 10 minutes, like you're not even a competitor, these new blockchains can settle in 10, 10 seconds. Uh, and so it's sort of th this whole world of printed out contracts and filing cabinets, um, you know, the, the whole world of opaque derivatives that and CDOs and mortgage backed securities that led to the 2008 financial crisis. I, I think that's the old bottle. Now, what's the new model? What what is what is going to be the technology layer of 2030 that powers this new integrated global financial system. Well, I think that's what DeFi is. You know, DeFi is, of course, built with decentralized blockchains and smart contracts, and it requires no centralized authority. So it can be truly global. It doesn't have to be beholden to a, a particular nation state. It can serve all people around the world. And it enables 24 seven markets, instant settlements, instant payments, um, the ability to actually tokenize your assets so that they can trade on a 24-7 market, open source composability, which means the developers can build 
You know, you can build Compound on top of Aave, which then connects to Lido. You can actually make the applications like have an API layer and talk to each other. By the way, this API layer, for people who don't know, application programming interface, this is uh, what's often referred to colloquially as the idea of money Legos, that you can basically snap together these different abstraction layers to make them interact seamlessly so that services can provide services to services, and you can build on top of that very advanced applications by being able to leverage uh, other things that have already been done. Exactly, Ash. I call that programmable money. And, and when you can have programmable money, I think it creates a world where you have to follow the innovation, you have to follow the developers. And, and when I hear Elizabeth Warren or someone who who at least seems to be making public statements that demonstrate that they don't understand the technology behind distributed ledgers and blockchains. You could look at Christine Lagarde in the EU as another example. These people are making public statements on a monthly basis, basically saying uh, crypto is all speculative, crypto is all a scam. And, and I think that's very interesting uh, considering that these are going to be the technologies that their organizations are going to be in charge of of regulating and maintaining and supporting and encouraging uh, in, in three or four years. And so I think every regulator and every investor has to do a deep dive on DeFi. Yeah. Well, I teed the ball up for you when I said, what's wrong with the current financial system? I think we all know those challenges uh, and, you, and you highlighted them very eloquently. Uh, and I would also highlight uh, to your point, something that you mentioned in passing, which is this, the absence of, of transparency in the traditional financial system uh, that caused uh, obviously a crisis in 2008, not knowing how assets were rehypothecated, no transparency, knowing who was holding what, Counterparties didn't want to trade because they had no idea uh, what the other person on another desk was holding. These were catastrophic failures uh, of the traditional financial system that we saw during the 2007-2008 era. And by the way, it's something that dates back decades. There's something called the paperwork crisis in the 1960s when the New York Stock Exchange had to close down, I think, one or two days a week as they were trying to work their way through the backlog. When you talk about this world of filing cabinets and paper contracts, this certainly seems, uh, based on the technology that we're seeing, to look really antiquated. And when you mention uh, this notion of how we're going to steer our way through this, uh, how regulators are going to think about this system, what do you think that transition path looks like? Because as you've mentioned, obviously there have been some negative comments. I don't want to single anyone out, but regulators have uh, said uh, in the U.S. and abroad uh, some things that sound very, um, well, I guess the most conservative way of saying it is concerned about the new system that's developing. What does that trajectory look like? How do we get from where we are today to a world where these technologies are beginning to run uh, outside of people like you and me who think this stuff is really cool? Well, I, I think every financial regulator in the world today faces a choice. And, and this is the same with every politician in the world today. Uh, do you want to be a ticker tape dinosaur, you know, someone that is creating the legacy system and patching it up to make it just work well enough for, for the people at the top of the pyramid? Or do you actually want to be enabling innovation? Do you want to be an innovation enabler or a ticker tape dinosaur? Ticker tape, I'm, of course, referencing the way they used to print out the stock prices in New York City and have ticker tape parades in the 1930s and 40s and 50s. You know, we didn't even have um, the ability to trade stocks at less than a one eighth uh, change until about 25 years ago. You know, when I was a kid, stocks were priced at 25 and one eighth or 25 and three eighths. And then we went to a digital world where it could be priced in pennies. And that, and that created a lot of improvements and a lot of efficiency. 
And so the old model is the world of 1990, where you have a, a hegemonic power, the United States of America, dominating the world and making the world's regulations for everyone else in, in a post-World War II environment. It's a different world in the 2020s and 2030s. And I'm 37 now. You know, the people who are in their 40s and 50s who are creating these regulations and 60s sometimes, they really need to embrace innovation. And frankly, distributed ledger technology and blockchains are going to power the future financial system. And the political campaigns and the political um, parties that embrace innovation and recognize that crypto is probably going to be the biggest donors to their campaigns in 2024 and 2028. It's not oil and gas money anymore. That's dying, right? And so you really have to think who, which, whichever political party, at least in the United States and probably around the world, most aligns with digital assets over the next 10 years is going to be the, the party that does the best. So what happens, Ryan, if in the short term or even intermediate term, uh, regulators say, uh, ticker tape dinosaur, just good enough? I'm in. That sounds great. That sounds like a, the system I want for the next decade until I retire in five years. Well, and that's what we see. We And, and I'm trying to be highly respectful. I have to, I, you know, I went to Harvard Business School. Elizabeth Warren went to Harvard Law School. I, I need to be able to understand that these are people who are working their best and doing their best to be able to maintain an old system that is breaking down, right? And and a lot of times their public statements are not particularly in alignment with what they actually think themselves because they're playing a political game. They need to get reelected to Senate, whatever it might be. But in reality, what we have here is you have people in their 70s who are making rules that are actually harming innovation and making America less competitive. And what we need right now is to be able to be a beacon of light on the hill that America embraces innovation. And we have to propose and be able to support a model that is an alternative to the different model that's being proposed in the East by China. That is a very centralized model. And I will bet on decentralized innovation over centralized uh, government every, every year. I, I will always make that bet. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So let's talk about it, because there's some fascinating ideas there. Uh, first, to be fair to the people who aren't in the room, I imagine that there's probably, particularly for people uh, who didn't grow up, come of age with this technology, I suspect there's probably a lot of fear and anxiety uh, about what a decentralized future looks like. I, I Maybe I'm a bit of an optimist, but I believe that lots of people in these regulatory roles are really trying to do the right thing, especially here in the United States, about what they believe, what they perceive to be the right thing for the country. But you present this vision uh, that is, I guess, at the same time, equal parts uh, optimistic and pessimistic. You talk about this notion of the, the the shining city on a hill, the John Winthrop metaphor for what the United States can be, this beacon of freedom and opportunity uh, and economic progress for the world. But then you mention that there are other models coming out of the East with which it's going to be competing. So I think this is a really interesting point, this idea, in, in a sense, that standing still simply isn't an option uh, in 2022. Uh, because your competitors uh, around the world are going to be implementing these technologies, perhaps in ways 
they're far less open, far more centralized. Give us a sense of what that debate looks like, how you think about it, and how you think about it as an investor specifically. Yeah, great, great questions. I had no idea we'd be getting so deep into political philosophy and, and digital assets today. And I'm so excited that we are, you know, this is what I write about uh, every single week in CoinStack, not only the technology, but also the political philosophy of it. And so, you know, they're at, at a very high level, there are two big um, visions for how to manage 8 billion people in the world. Uh, th there's the vision of the West, which goes back, you know, 500 plus years now. Uh, you, you could even go back uh, a little bit, a little bit earlier to the days of the Renaissance, to the days of Europe, and and of course, you know, knowing 20th century history, America has ended up playing a big role in the development of the financial and economic and political infrastructure of uh, liberal uh, free market economies and democracies over the last couple hundred years. You know, that's what our nation was founded on. You know, 250 years ago now. Um, and at the same time, um, we have another model that um, is interesting. You know, chi China, you know, Russia became communist in 1917. China became more or less communist in the, in the 40s and 50s. But what happened in the 1990s and 2000s is that China began to open up. Uh, you know, the USSR fell apart, the Berlin Wall fell, and, and ch on China, they began to actually embrace a form of moderate planning version of, of a market economy. Um, but what's happening right now is that China is making a major geopolitical blunder. Uh, and they've, what I would say, made last year a 30-year generational mistake by really, um, for the seventh or eighth time, but actually truly enforcing it this time, banning Bitcoin mining. And what that has done, and I want to be clear, I am a Bitcoin fan. I think Ethereum will ultimately win, but I am a significant Bitcoin fan. And I think it's led to incredible innovation in the space over the last 13, 14 years. And by banning Bitcoin mining, China has essentially taken themselves out of the economic arms race to be the leader in digital assets. And they've said, no, we're going to have a nation state backed uh, central bank digital currency, a CBDC. We're going to launch the digital yuan at the Winter Olympics, which are coming up here in a month or two. They've done a lot of tests with this in, the, in 2021, and now they're launching it in 2022. And they are making a bet that in their 1.4, 1.5 billion people, that they can keep the rest of the world's financial system essentially out and have a, a few different APIs that connect, but essentially block out the rest of the world. And I think what we have is in the opportunity uh, in, here in the West, in the United States, is to say, you know what? We're going to take a, a look at the private sector. We're going to look at what Coinbase and the Center Consortium have done with USDC, and we're going to actually support that. We're going to encourage that. We're going to get folks like Gary Gensler at the SEC actually doing the work that they signed up to do, which is to create a clear and concise and crisp regulatory framework for digital assets so that innovators can actually build without fear and not have to move to Switzerland or Singapore or another part of the world to actually create, which is ha exactly what's happening right now. And so I think there's this huge opportunity right now for us in the U.S. And, and I think there's going to be a, an interesting political uh, uh, movement happening around the 2024 election around this 
to really say that we are going to embrace um, decentralized innovation over centralized planning. That's in our DNA as a country, as Americans. Um, and I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for political campaigns and political parties to get behind the digital asset movement, because that's where a lot of the funding is going to come from. And I think that we are going to have to recognize and be humble as a country and say that we are only 5% of the world's population. We've had a system for 75 years where the U.S. dollar has been sort of the, the de facto uh, prime currency of the world. That's probably not going to continue for another 20 or 30 years. And we have to move to supporting a model where non-nation state backed uh, currencies are actually seen as legitimate. And, and I think that is going to start happening. I don't think we're going to have a national CBDC in the United States. I think we're just going to support the private sector stable coins that have already been created. I mean, that would be a huge shift in terms of the way the financial system and the U.S. economy operate. Yeah, it, it's it's a whole new world out there. And, and the leaders right now who are in their 60s and 70s that are leading this country, um, I don't think they may get it. But at least from their public statements, it doesn't seem like the leaders of the United States currently get how big of a shift is going to happen in the next 15 years with the global financial system and how important it is that we become and stay a leader in that field. Boy, Ryan, uh, from the tech to the finance, from the micro to the macro, this has been a deep and wide ranging conversation. As we come to the end of this conversation, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Yeah, you know, I think the last year and a half, last two years with COVID has been a time of challenge for many people. It's caused a lot of people to rethink uh, our priorities in life. I'm about to become a father for the first time in June, uh, which is really exciting with my wife, Morgan. And so I'm starting to think about not just this next three or four years, I'm starting to think about the next 30 or 40 years. And I really think there's an opportunity that if we can uh, encourage innovation, encourage developers, encourage the people that are working hard to create the future of a fair and open financial system that everyone can participate in, and to be able to move away from the current system, which is making asset prices sky high, but is increasing inequality through continuously printing money in a centralized government way where a few people have the ability to affect hundreds of millions of lives, and we can move to a new model that actually has sound money at the basis of it, where economic financial services are available to everybody, in which we don't keep deflating away the value of the, the income that regular people make uh, every single day. I think we can create a system. I think we can get through this challenge, get through this bottleneck over the next 10 years and find a way to the other side. So um, optimism, but hard work and encouragement of innovation, not stifling it is going to be the way we get through this. So much more to talk about there, Ryan. We're going to have to have you back to continue that conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ash. It's been lovely today. And thanks for watching, everybody. Hey there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight.
So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo at realvision.com. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Crypto Podcast. For more great crypto content like this, head over to realvision.com slash crypto and get unfiltered access to the most brilliant minds in finance and crypto.